Uh, at this point, I'd like to uh, introduce a very good friend of mine, the Executive Director of the Illinois State Historical Society, Bill Waldorfer, who will introduce the speaker of the evening. I'll try to keep it Thank you, Jerry. You know, a, a person who is to introduce a speaker is supposed to come with some great deal of enthusiasm. And I have to confess that uh, I have some misgivings about this tonight because fully a year ago, when I had barely unpacked my bags down in Springfield, I had, was called by a breathless secretary of the Civil War Roundtable, Berlin. He asked me, he said, could you take the June talk at the June of 1968? And I graciously consented. That evening, I wrote my talk, as anyone would do, <laughs> when they were asked by Berlin. Six months later, sometime in January, I think it was, I was asked to delay my talk <laughs> <laughs> because it was learned that our speaker for the evening was making one of his very few trips <laughs> north of the, the line. He would be at the University of Wisconsin and would be able to talk at that time and no other time. And so I tucked my speech back in my bag which I brought along tonight, and said, yes, I would very much like to introduce the speaker. Then, in May, our editor, Mr. Twiss, sent out a, an announcement of this meeting, which he described, I think it took several pages, the qualifications of our speaker, I'm sure all you gentlemen have received this and looked at it. The very complete biography has been given already. The, the reason for this, of course, is, is, is known. He wants the person that's going to introduce the speaker to be very short in his introduction. He was fulsome, I think, probably not full enough, really. These, the academic credentials that Gil has listed in your newsletter for June, as a matter of fact, the newsletter even arrived in May and is dated June. The academic credentials, of course, are outstanding, Dr. Williams. There's a partial biography. I could have listed the articles and books that were not listed on this announcement, but that would have been a little superfluous because we all know these to be, excuse the word, classics in Civil War history that our speaker has written. But he did, and I was glad that he did this. Gil did list the fact that our speaker has a developed sense of humor. 
And I couldn't help wondering at the time whether the fact that he was born in Vinegar Hill, Illinois, which of course he had nothing to do with, but the defense of which in the succeeding years must certainly have helped to develop that sense of humor. And then the additional fact in our newsletter that our speaker lives in Baton Rouge in a home that is called, quote, Lincoln and, end quote, Baton Rouge. This has to be a masterful piece of humor. I wondered if I could add to that, and I, I did. I had a spy try to search out some additional information. Uh, the information had to do with a, it was one of those, one of these blind alleys sort of things that you run into. It had to do with the the fact that there is a Black Panther in Baton Rouge in the neighborhood. And it just, uh, I, I asked for corroboration of this from our speaker this evening. There was absolutely no corroboration. I didn't, uh, frankly, as a scholar, I would like to go to another source. And so I went to his wife, unbeknownst to him, and she would not corroborate this. And so I'm sorry to say I have no additional information to impart to you this evening except the fact that we are very, very pleased to have T. Harry Williams make another of his talks to us this evening, and he will speak on a yank at Oxford. Uh, Mr. Past President and uh, present president and uh, uh, all the other past and uh, uh, present dignitaries and uh, friends. It's, uh, of course, always uh, good to be back before this group that is so uh, apperceptive and uh, sensitive and knowledgeable and alcoholic. <laughs> uh, the uh, subject of my address tonight is uh, well, it, it deals uh, uh, partly with the Civil War, although maybe perhaps right on the edges of it. Uh, it's about my experience, uh, not this past academic year, but the year before that at Oxford University in England, uh, where I uh, held the chair of uh, Harmsworth Professor of American History, and uh, where I taught a course that was related to the Civil War. Uh, the Harmsworth Chair uh, is esteemed to be uh, a great honor in America. And uh, before a group of people who are uh, interested in history, I think I should begin by uh, telling you something about the, uh, the origin of the chair. Uh, it was endowed in the 1920s uh, by the uh, then uh, Lord Rothermere, uh, the owner of the uh, Daily Mail, uh, who is a great believer in Anglo-American relations. And he had the idea of endowing a chair at Oxford. I don't know why he happened to pick on Oxford, uh, but uh, of endowing a chair. And at first the idea was that the man who held it would be uh, a permanent employee 
And uh, one, the first man who was there for several years uh, was one whose name uh, you may recognize, Robert McElroy, who uh, back in the 1930s, I think, uh, wrote a two-volume life of Jefferson Davis. Uh, but for some reason, he didn't want to stay there. Uh, and uh, they then hit on the idea of inviting a different American each year uh, to hold the chair. Uh, and, and he is known there as the uh, Harmsworth Professor, named that, that's the family name of the, of the Rothermeers, and uh, uh, the Lord Rothermere who endowed the chair named it after one of his brothers uh, who was killed in World War I. And here, right at the start, uh, I have to make a distinction uh, be, uh, between uh, a professor uh, in an in a, uh, un English university like Oxford or Cambridge uh, and uh, other people there uh, who are called uh, fellows uh, or dons, and I'm sure you've heard this expression, uh, he was a, he's a don at Oxford, he is a don at Cambridge, or a fellow at Oxford or Cambridge. Well, what then is the distinction between a professor and a fellow? Well, I get into this whole business with some hesitation, uh, because it's very difficult to describe uh, the Oxford or Cambridge system to an American audience. Uh, because there's nothing I know of in America uh, that is similar to it. Uh, and again, uh, there is a large measure of illogic uh, about the English, about their government and their educational system uh, and their social system. They have a great talent for illogic, really, I think, and I'll refer to this again. Uh, but uh, when I, uh, I think about the difficulties of explaining the Oxford or Cambridge system, and then I reflect to myself that I don't understand the system, maybe, after having been there a year. Uh, I'm comforted by the fact uh, that I don't think the English understand it either. Uh, but uh, a, a professor, now notice I say at Oxford or Cambridge, and I say that with a certain degree of snobbery. Uh, I'm a natural snob anyway, and I uh, uh, delighted in this innate snobbery in the English system. But you know, Oxford or Cambridge, they, when they talk about the other, other universities, uh, they say the provincial universities <laughs> or the red brick universities. Uh, and uh, they are, these other universities are uh, uh, quite similar to an American university. For example, if you were to go to the University of Nottingham or the University of Exeter and you looked it over, physically it would seem like an American university. There'd be a social science building, a science building, uh, etc. Uh, uh, but at Oxford or Cambridge it is different uh, and a professor uh, is employed by the university uh, whereas a fellow or a don, fellow or don being synonymous, uh, a fellow or a don is employed by his college, by, by the, uh, his college, one of a number that makes up the university. But a professor is employed by the university and his salary is somewhat higher than that of a fellow or a don. But by American standards, the salaries are pitifully small. Uh, for example, I received last year, and this was the top salary for a professor, for uh, uh, any academic employee in an English university, uh, a salary of $12,400. And that's, that, that's, that's pretty low by American standards. Uh, but in England, it doesn't do you any good to make much more money uh, because the English income tax takes 98% of everything above $14,000.
you Republicans, you say you quit your bitching about the American system. Uh, so a professor is employed by the university. He is assigned by the university rather than by his college. But he could not live and teach in Oxford unless he was also a fellow of a particular college. He has to be a fellow of a particular college as well as being a professor. So he is automatically made a fellow of a particular college and the Harmsworth uh, professorship, for example, uh, is attached to uh, what is called the Queen's College uh, in Oxford. So in addition to being the Harmsworth Professor of American History, I was a uh, fellow of Queen's College. Now I say it's very difficult to describe the Oxford or Cambridge system, and I picked up some knowledge about it before we went over there from uh, some of my predecessors, notably Professor Bell Wiley, but we wanted to find out more and that's one reason why we went early. Uh, I didn't have to start my teaching duties until early October, uh, but we arrived in Oxford uh, in uh, mid-September. And Oxford is made up of over 30 different colleges. Uh, three or four of them are women's colleges. Uh, the others are men's colleges. And essentially, it is a man's university. Uh, but the American visitor in Oxford is generally puzzled when he goes to look for Oxford University. You know, we're accustomed to seeing a campus. And as I say, if you went to Nottingham or Exeter, you would see a campus. They wouldn't use the word campus, but you would see uh, a campus. But these 30-plus uh, Oxford colleges are stashed all around the city of Oxford. Now, it's true that most of them are concentrated in a certain area uh, on uh, High Street or off High Street, uh, but others are situated at a great distance. Uh, but each one is separated from the other, and in front of each one there is a, oh, well, a, a wall, we would say, uh, and the American tourist who walks along High Street, the center of the colleges, uh, simply doesn't see it. And there is uh, a... Uh, Oxford stories about the tourists walking along High Street, and he'll stop somebody, and he'll, the student, he'll say, where is the university? And the student, if he's mischievous, will send him to the Cowley Auto Works uh, or someplace. Uh, but you just wouldn't know that there is a university there unless you knew enough about it uh, to go into these uh, gates, these lodges uh, that get you into the uh, quadrangles uh, of the colleges. Uh, Oxford University was founded, as far as we know, uh, in the 1200s uh, by wandering scholars who came and uh, set up classes and then others came uh, and students came uh, and gradually colleges were formed and then eventually they were federated I use the word federated advisedly uh, something like the American states federated into uh, the university uh, but each college has its own identity uh, its own income, which it derives from property which it owns. It, it gets no income from the university. And some colleges are richer than others. They'll say, for example, like uh, Queen's College is a rich college. Uh, uh, Jesus College is a poor college. Uh, each college has its own regulations. Uh, each college has its own uh, uh, emblems. Uh, each college has its own necktie. For example, I'm wearing a Queen's College necktie tonight. I told you I was a snob. Uh, uh, the enrollment of each college runs between two and three hundred students, and the total enrollment of Oxford University last year was only 10,000. Uh, Cambridge 
uh, somewhat larger. Uh, but if you go to Oxford, and if you get behind the gates of a college, and all you can do is walk in the gate, uh, you're in, in a place that is incredibly beautiful. Uh, you are literally in the Middle Ages. Uh, each college has its chapel, it has its dining hall, uh, its dormitories, uh, and, 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 and physically uh, they, they have the beauty of age. And each college is run, and I mean literally run, operated by the fellows, we'd say the faculty members. It is, it is academic democracy run rampant. Administrators, deans, well they don't have any deans really, but people like deans, uh, presidents have no power at all in the Oxford system. Uh, they are ceremonial officers. Uh, each college has a head. He's called by different titles, warden, provost, principal, but each college is run by the fellows. And I used to go to some of the meetings. Uh, we call them faculty meetings. They call them meetings of the governing board of the college. And they are long, interminable affairs. I know one went on all day with a break for lunch. Uh, but uh, in between, they have coffee and cakes, and they even serve wines uh, at the intermissions. Very good faculty meetings, really. We could learn a lot from the English. Uh, but the issues they discuss uh, at these uh, meetings of the governing board, by American standards, are fantastic. Uh, for example, uh, well, each college has a business agent. They call him the estate's bursar. They don't call him business agent, but estate's bursar, but he's really the business agent. And the estate's bursar at Queens College was a former uh, civil servant in India, and he'd taken this job at Queens College. And he would often say to me wistfully, I wish we had the freedom that your American administrators have. And I could see what he meant. Uh, because, for example, at one meeting I went to, Queens College owns a theater in Southampton. And he had negotiated a lease for the coming year with a rental, but he had to submit this to the fellows for their approval. And if they didn't like the figure, they could make him change it. And, and sit around for hours and listen to these musicians and philosophers and historians debate on was this the correct rental or should it be raised or lowered, you see, uh, was really uh, uh, something. Now, I have said that the heads of the colleges do not have any formal power, but they have a great deal of power through their influence. Uh, they are chosen by the fellows, uh, but the, the heads of these colleges are very exceptional men, uh, very great men, uh, many of them. Uh, and they exercise, or they can exercise, a good deal of influence on the fellows simply by, by their guidance, by their personalities, by their, their prestige. Uh, for example, the Provost of Queens College was uh, Lord Florey, one of the men who helped develop penicillin uh, for commercial use, a winner of the Nobel Prize. Uh, the province of Worcester College was Lord Franks, a former ambassador to the United States. And the warden of Merton College, a very wonderful man called Harrison, who had been a historian at one time, and who incidentally had an idea that he liked to play around with at dinners. He was half serious about it, half, in, half humorous. Uh, and this was his alternative to England's joining the common market. Uh, and uh, his, his idea was that instead England should enter the American Union as so many new states. And they have a great deal of fun discussing, I say half seriously, half in jest, how many states England should come in as. <laughs> should it be four, five, or six? Should Wales have a separate senator? Uh, should there be one for Scotland? But what he wanted to get above all 
was an incident in reverse of the Boston Tea Party so that England could force her way in if we didn't want to let her, you see. <laughs> Uh, the university itself is a corporation. It elects members to the Oxford City Council. I voted for two of these members. Maybe this makes me ineligible to vote in America. I don't know. Uh, and uh, the university itself is governed by the fellows from all the different colleges. They have two organizations, one called Congregation and the other called the Abdominal Council. And, and these meetings are as supreme for the university as the governing board is for each college. Now, there is a ritualistic head of the university who is chosen for a term of four years, uh, and uh, his title is the vice chancellor. Uh, but he is largely a, a ceremonial officer. Uh, the university has its own courts for many cases involving students, and its own police, grim-looking gentlemen who wear uh, bowler hats and who are known as bulldogs uh, and who stride up and down the streets at certain occasions. And then it has uh, officials that I would say are somewhat similar to our deans of men who are known as proctors. And the proctors have a, a, a function of roaming the streets of Oxford after 11 o'clock to see if any student is out after hours. Now, incidentally, girls can visit boys in their rooms at a college before, but they have to leave at 11. It's a great experience to stand outside of an Oxford college at 11 o'clock uh, and see this horde of women come streaming out. Uh, but uh, all students are supposed to be in their rooms uh, by 11, but the proctors roam the streets, and if they find a student, say a boy who's out after hours, they go up to him and they say, your name in college, please. And he gives it, and the proctor says, report next morning to the head of your college. And of course the proctor reports it, and the boy has to come in, but he has this great advantage. Every Oxford man is thought to be a gentleman, and a gentleman never lies, and therefore any story he tells is supposed to be accepted. <laughs> but there's this famous Oxford story of the boy who was caught out not only after hours, but with a woman of the town. And the proctor nabbed him and ordered him to report, and the boy came in the next morning, and the head of the college said, you were seen out last night after hours. Uh, with a woman, and the boy unblessingly said, uh, uh, yes, sir, that was my sister. Well, this was such a palpable falsehood that the head of the college was shocked into doubting the word of an Oxford gentleman. He said, why, that woman is a notorious prostitute. The kid said, I know it. Mother and I worry about it all the time. <laughs> Oxford fellows and professors do, by our standards, uh, an incredible amount of teaching. Now, I, I say this knowing that in America it's getting to be a status symbol not to teach anymore, uh, at least not to teach undergraduates. And I think that is one of the unconscious uh, roots of student unrest today. I think the students are right about this, that they're taught by graduate assistants, they are not taught by senior members of the faculty anymore. <coughs> Uh, but uh, at, at Oxford and Cambridge, these men do an awful amount of teaching. Uh, they do relatively little lecturing. Uh, the lecture system is relatively unimportant at Oxford or Cambridge. I think they're wrong about that. They can do more with it than they do. And most Oxford lecturers are poor lecturers. Uh, but they do a great deal of work in what they call classes or classes. 
uh, we call them undergraduate seminars, where 10 or 15 undergraduates meet with uh, uh, two, uh, two members of the faculty, and uh, every week each student reads a paper. And they also do a great deal of work in what they call the tutorials, where one student or two or three meet with a, a member of the faculty, and each one will read a paper. Uh, uh, Oxford students are required to do a, a great deal of writing, and they get a great deal of individual attention. Now, now this is very fine. This is a very good system of teaching, really, because it, it, it encourages the individual mind to think. And, and they're, they're pretty smug about it, but they forget, I think, that they can do it that way because they are not overwhelmed by numbers, as we are in the American system. We, we couldn't possibly uh, establish a system like this at the average American university uh, uh, because uh, of our democratic system of education where we have these huge numbers of students. Well, I wanted to find out what I was going to teach, and I found out something about it before I went over there. And I knew that the first term, and I'll say something about these terms in a minute, I was to teach a lecture course entitled, give two lectures a week on Tuesday and Thursdays, uh, in, and the name of the course was, and at that time this was, uh, was formerly the only course in American history offered at Oxford as a part of the <coughs> curriculum in modern history. That's been changed now. But for a long time this was the only course in American history entitled Slavery and Secession with the dates 1850 to 1862. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out that odd terminal date, you know. I thought maybe some confederate had made it out. And, you know, we won't find out, won't find out how it ended. Uh, but it turned out, I think, that Alan Nevins had devised this uh, course. And 1862 uh, was the date in the war when emancipation became an objective of the Union government. And so apparently to Alan, this had seemed a logical uh, a stopping point. So 1850 to 1862, but then I was desolated to read in the catalog, students will not be examined on battles. <laughs> uh, now, you know, they've had, they've had arms work professors over there who, who are not specialists in this field. Like, for example, Mr. Lawrence Gibson, whose specialty was colonial history and who lectured on colonial history. Well, if the students aren't going to be examined on the subject, they're not going to come to the lecture, you see. I think Mr. Gibson ended up with two students, <laughs> but stayed there and drew his salary all year. Uh, but uh, I, I was to avoid battles, and a man, uh, the man at Oxford who was the coordinator in American history, uh, a very wonderful man named Herbert Nicholas uh, from New College, which is one of the oldest colleges in Oxford. This is, again, is the English talent for illogic, you see. Uh, but Mr. Nicholas told me to go back beyond 1850 and to explain to them something about the American political system. He said they won't know what sections are. They don't understand the problems of having a written constitution. They don't understand about American parties. And then he advised me to get a map uh, indicating that their idea of the geography of the colonies was fairly vague. And you know I had a hell of a time finding a map of the United States in Oxford. I finally had to go up to the Rhodes House Library, and I took out an old one issued in the 1920s, which was the best thing they had. But maps of the great republic of the West were not plentiful in Oxford. Uh, but I knew I was to teach this lecture course, and I knew that when I was to teach it, or whenever I appeared in any official capacity, 
I was to wear my academic gown, which is something like the gowns we wear at commencement, only it has shorter sleeves. And many years ago, some Harmsworth professor had bought a gown, I don't know who it was, uh, way back in the 1950s, and I was told I would find it in my, they don't say office, they say your room, in my room at Queens College, and there it was. It was getting pretty threadbare. And Harmsworth professors of all sizes had worn it. You know, Bell Wiley, how tall he is. He wore it the year before I wore it, you see. And uh, I, it, it's, it's about done in, I think. Well, anyway, I, I knew I was to teach this lecture class, and then that I was to sit in with Mr. Herbert Nicholas on a, uh, a, a joint undergraduate seminar. Uh, many of the same students in the lecture class were in this seminar. Incidentally, they always have two men conduct a seminar instead of one, as we do here. And I think the two-man seminar is much better than the one-man seminar because you get a play not only between the faculty member and the student, but also between the two faculty members. And Mr. Nicholas had assigned the topics, and each student read a paper each week, like, uh, what were Stephen A. Douglas's motives in getting the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed? Whose vote elected Lincoln in 1860, do you say? These were the problems. And each student read a paper, and he not only read secondary works, but the Congressional Globe. This was part of his assignment. Four or five hundred pages of debates in the Congressional Globe. And then at the end, Mr. Nicholas and I would uh, discuss the, uh, uh, the paper. Well, now, their, their schedule is much more leisurely than ours. They have three terms. The first term, which they call Michaelmas, began last year on October the 9th, went for eight weeks, ending on December the 3rd, and then you get a six weeks vacation. Six weeks. Good time for travel, you see. And the second term, which they call Hillary term, uh, began on January the 15th and went to March the 11th, and then you get another six weeks vacation. And the third term, Trinity term, began late in April and ended in the middle uh, of June. Well, uh, the first term, Michaelmas term, I had this lecture class. It was in a building they called the school's building, a lecture class of 25 to 30. And at first I thought I was slipping when I uh, saw it. Uh, but I was told that this was a, a pretty good-sized lecture class for Oxford. And I began before 1850, and I told them what American historians meant by sections like the Northeast, the South, the Northwest. And, and, and I found this about them. They, that they were fascinated, as many Americans are, by the enigma of the American South, this section that seems to be different from the American norm. And why is it different, do you see? Uh, what, what are the factors that have made it uh, different? And, and this they, they, they couldn't hear enough of. And at the end of the first term, I was only somewhat past the uh, Compromise of 1850. And the second term, uh, Hillary term, I, I knew I was to go on with the lecture class, and I assumed I would sit in on another one of these uh, undergraduate uh, uh, seminars. But I was told, no, I didn't have to. All I had to do was just give the lectures, two lectures a week. Well, I thought this was a waste of my magnificent talents uh, after bringing me over there. And so I voluntarily sat in on another uh, undergraduate uh, seminar, you see. And then the third term, I had absolutely nothing to do. I was expected to be around if any student wanted to come in to see me, uh, but I had absolutely nothing to do. I was asked to do no tutorials and so forth. But what I wanted to tell you about was what happened at the end of the second term. Uh, uh, by about the sixth week, I was getting up near the election of 1860. 
And uh, at Oxford, incidentally, uh, students at Oxford go three years, not four. And uh, the only examinations they have are at the end of the third year. Uh, uh, but uh, 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 sometimes, at, at the end of the third term, the third year, but sometimes they have a preliminary examination at the end of the second term. And I was told that I might get a note from the man who ran the rooms at this building saying that he would need my lecture room for the seventh or eighth week. And sure enough, I got a note saying, unless you need your room uh, for your lectures, we would like to have it for an ex one of these preliminary examinations. And I thought, you know, I should do this. But then some of the students came to me and they said, are you going to lecture the seventh and eighth weeks? And incidentally, I was very gratified, very flattered to find that my class held together, my lecture class, and most Oxford lecture classes tend to break up because it's not important in the Oxford system. And as I said, most Oxford lectures are core lecturers. And so the, cla the lecture classes just tend to break up really and disappear. But this one had held together. But they said, are you going to lecture the seventh and eighth weeks? And I said, well, yes, if you want me to. And they said, we do want you to. And will you talk about battles? <laughs> and even though they weren't going to be examined on them, they'd heard about the Civil War battles and the Civil War generals, and they wanted to discuss it. Well, in two 50-minute periods, I couldn't do very much, but I, you know, rated some of the generals and uh, all kinds of remarks like, How, why, do you, why don't you rate Stonewall Jackson higher, and et cetera, and it was just like I was back at a round table. Uh, <laughs> but they really, wanted, they really wanted to hear about them. At one time, there was a great deal of interest in the American Civil War, particularly the battles in England. But I, I don't think this is nearly as true as it used to be. Uh, and uh, particularly, it was true, I think, of an older generation. Uh, and it's not true so much of the younger generation, although the interest is, is still there. Uh, I'm often asked to compare the English and American educational systems and the English and American students. Uh, and this is hard to do because, as I've said, at Oxford or Cambridge, they can do it in a way that we can't do it here uh, because they have a relatively large number of teachers as compared to the number of students. Uh, but uh, in, the, in the English system, uh, they give all students an examination when they're about 11 years old. 11 years. And this examination determines whether or not they can go to a university. The Labor Party doesn't like this rule, incidentally, and is trying to get it abolished. Uh, but uh, uh, this examination determines whether they can go to university, and those that don't make it are told they have to go to a vocational school. You see? Mm -hmm. So they come in with a certain selectivity, and at Oxford or Cambridge, they have to, uh, well, they've had to know two languages, one of which is Latin. Cambridge has abolished one of the languages, but Oxford has kept it. But they, they have to have a good deal before they get in, and they're on their own a great deal more than they are in the United States. In other words, they aren't spoon-fed as much in lectures, do you see? They have to do a lot of it on their own. Uh, and they specialize much more than our students do. For example, somebody, they, they say reading in history. We'd say majoring in history. He, he wouldn't take a course in science or mathematics at all, you see. So they're not as widely educated as our students are, but they're more educated uh, in their specialty than, than ours are. Now, I remarked that for a long time, uh, only one course in American history was taught at Oxford, but increasingly it's becoming more popular. And uh, last year, they put in two new courses in American history, uh, one running from 1787 to 1850, and the other running from 1865 to 1920. There's an increasing demand for it. 
and an increasing realization on the part of English educators and students that it is important for young English boys and girls to know something about the history of one of the two great powers of the modern world. And they think it is important that they, they, they know American history. Well, shifting to another subject, uh, I was highly intrigued by the social life of the English colleges. As I said, I was just enough of a snob, so I ate it up. Uh, the students, 200 to 300 in each college, uh, eat at the college, eat in what's called the hall, and the fellows eat there also. The fellows eat at the end on a raised platform uh, that is called the high table. And the food at an Oxford college is free. This is one of the fringe benefits. The salaries are low, but they're fringe benefits, and the food is free. And this leads some of these characters to eat there practically all the time. I don't know when they see their wives, uh, but many of them will eat lunch and dinner there. Uh, uh, some of them who are bachelors live in the college and eat three meals a day there. Uh, but this is an important item, do you see? Uh, and, and, and many of them are there uh, one or two meals every day. And I, I, I couldn't do it that often. I just wasn't uh, uh, that accustomed to being away from my wife. Uh, but I would eat there four or five times a week, lunch three or four times, dinner twice. Uh, the food is free, uh, but the wine is not. You have to pay for the wine, uh, which is put on a list which is known as your battles, B-A-T-T-E-L-S. Uh, they, they do never, I hardly ever at least, drink whiskey or cocktails before a dinner. Uh, they consider this to be uh, American and... Uh, uh, a little bit too much. They drink sherry before a meal and then uh, uh, two or three kinds of wines with the meal. And if they have whiskey, it is after the meal. And when they say whiskey, they mean scotch. They don't know what bourbon is. I went all around Oxford trying to buy a bottle of bourbon. They'd say, what do you mean? What is that word, you know? And I finally found one place where I got a bottle of Canadian Club for about $10. Uh, but uh, there is a ceremony to uh, this social life, uh, particularly at the evening meals or the dinners, uh, where you have to wear your academic gown to the dinner. Now, you don't to lunch, but at the dinner you have to wear your academic gown, and the students go into the hall first. Each college has its different customs. In some colleges, the fellows congregate and march in together. At Queen's College, the students are summoned by a trumpet. Uh, this goes back to the medieval period. Uh, Queen's College, the fellows come in and gather in front of the fireplace and walk up to the high table. Uh, the students all rise. Uh, a steward bangs with a gavel, and a student gets up and recites a long prayer in Latin. Uh, then the, the fellows take their place uh, wherever they want to, the provost or the senior fellow at the head of the table. Uh, very good food. Uh, different wine with each meal. Uh, when the students get through, they leave, but the fellows leave at a common signal from the senior man present. And then, if they wish, not all wish, they, they, they march out of the hall and go upstairs to another building to what is called the senior common room. And here you take your gowns off. Remember, you had a full meal with, with two wines, you see. And here's the table already been laid out with fruit, uh, nuts, uh, candies, 
and uh, the men who, who decide to go to the senior common table have to sign up for it. They take their uh, uh, seats around this table, uh, they pass this fruit, the bananas, the peaches, the pears, and three kinds of wine, a port, Madeira, and a white wine. And you sit there and you eat and you drink, and you can't smoke until the wine has been around three times. It used to just about kill me, you see, waiting for that magic moment. Uh, but you can't smoke at the high table, you can't smoke the wine that's been around three times. And then finally, the senior, a very nice conversation, the senior fellow gives the signal to leave, and then you go to still another room for coffee, you see. Now, but the great dinners at Oxford are what are called the gaudies, G-A-U-D-I-E-S. And each college has all three or four gaudies a year. And for a gaudy, they turn the students out of the hall, they invite a lot of guests, so the hall's filled with 200, 300 people. And for a gaudy, you not only have to wear your academic gown, but a tux. I never used to tux so much in all my life as I did in England. Uh, but uh, you're, uh, the Harmsworth professor is invited to gaudies of other colleges. For example, I was invited to a very wonderful one at Merton College called the Boar's Head Gaudy. Uh, where near at Christmas time, uh, where the choir sings in the loft, and then they come in bearing a boar's head on a huge platter. Uh, and at these gaudies, they really roll out the wine. And you know, you can really get crop good on wine. <laughs> you may not think so, but you can get crop good on it. And uh, some guys get so drunk, they steal other people's gowns and so forth. Uh, but each college has its different customs. And now, this is typical of the English, and I think. Uh, very good of them, but you know, you know, there's nobody who so loves the old Oxford customs as the Americans. Because not having traditions ourselves, when we run into it in another country, I think we tend to go for it in a big way. And the biggest supporters of the old traditions at Oxford are the Americans. In fact, at some colleges, there have been moves to abolish some of them, and these moves have been defeated by the votes of visiting Americans, do you see? <laughs> uh, but at Queen's College, they have this wonderful custom I mean, I thought it was wonderful. Uh, they call it passing the cup. And at the end of the dinner, they pass down these three long tables. Starts out from the high table. Three long tables. Uh, 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 these huge horns. And in the horns, I'll say something in Latin, which is printed on cards up and down the table. Uh, and most people mumble it. Uh, and then you hoist this thing up and take a swig, you see. And then there's a napkin in the brim, and you take the napkin and you wipe the brim off where you drank. And then you hand it to the man at, at your left, you see? And as you do that, the man at your right sits down, but if Sprague takes it, then Arnold would stand up, do you see? So that as it goes down the table, there's a man standing at each side of the drinker every time. And they, very, they go through this very solemnly. Uh, I was very much impressed with the English. Uh, it's often said that they're a reserved people or an unfriendly people. I don't, I don't think this is true. I think they're a shy people, maybe. And often the American maybe has to make the first advance. Uh, but if they decide they like you, I, I think they're much more likely to take you into their families than we are. You know, we got this uh, first name custom. You know, you meet somebody, hi, Bill, and actually you don't know whether you want to call him Bill or not because you just met him. Now, they would never do that, but if they decide they liked you, that their level of reserve goes down right away, and, and, and you are in. Uh, and we were invited to a good many homes in Oxford, uh, liked them very much, found them a warm people, and uh, I thought with a 
wonderful sense of humor, uh, very different from ours. It's kind of a low-key sense of humor. And, and this, I think, is a typical example of it. Often in the senior common room, uh, I would be quizzed about the racial situation in America, and I would try to indicate to them that it wasn't quite a stereotype, maybe, as they thought it was. And, you know, all prejudice wasn't limited to the South, etc. And one meeting, I was talking, and I happened to be t uh, retailing an incident that had just come to my attention uh, of uh, two old women in New Orleans who were very rich and very old and therefore didn't care what they had to do, uh, who had, for years, somebody had written me this, uh, had been having dinners at, to which Negroes were invited. And I was recounting this, and for some reason I used the phrase, uh, I said they've been having interracial dinners. This one Englishman sat there reading a newspaper, and he put it down, and he said, who ate who? <laughs> uh, I, I think I should say that uh, I found in all classes of the English a great friendship for the United States. And outside of the university, I never met an Englishman of any class who wasn't very sympathetic to our position in Vietnam. I say outside of the university, because on political issues, English intellectuals are likely to be as impractical as American intellectuals. <laughs> I throw that in for the benefit of people like Clyde Walton and Tom Schoonover. <laughs> well, now uh, for the inaugural lecture. Every professor at Oxford, even though he's there only a year, has to give an inaugural lecture. And uh, I thought I, should, well, I would have to give it on the subject I was teaching. So before I went over, I'd written one out on Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis as war leaders. And I happened to mention this one time to Mr. Herbert Nicholas, this man who advised me on so many things, and he said, well, you don't have to give it on the subject you're teaching. You can give it on anything. He said, give it on Huey Long. And when I was writing a biography of Huey, he said they'd love to hear about Huey. So I quickly wrote a new inaugural lecture about Huey Long. Now, there's a funny thing about these inaugural lectures. You're, a, a professor is supposed to give one, and the harm to a professor is supposed to give one, but nobody tells him that. Uh, he is supposed to know it, and he's supposed to arrange it all by himself. And some of my predecessors have not given inaugural lectures, uh, partly because uh, nobody told them why should they give it, and this was very much resented, you see. But, but you, have to, you have to arrange it all yourself. And I'd found out about this. Bell Wiley helped me a great deal, Frank Vandiver. They said, you, first you decide when you want to give it. And Bell said, uh, oh, give it in January, the second term. You know, you'll know some people then, and maybe you'll get an audience and so forth. Uh, and uh, you, you have to call up the secretary to the vice chancellor, who is also known as the Beatle. Uh, and you, you say to him, uh, incidentally, so I was in kind of a hurry on this, or I wouldn't have called it. They don't like to use the telephone. They got telephones. You know, you know how they transact business? They write notes. They write notes that they send by messengers. The greatest note-writing people I ever saw in my life. My wife met a man at Oriel College, and she admired the silver, and he said, you want to see all the silver at Oriel? And she said, yes. He said, I'll write you a note about it. <laughs> so he wrote her a note. He said, can you come on such a day? And she wrote a note back and said, no, I can't come. And he, then he wrote her another note and said, I think it four or five notes before they hit on a schedule, you know. But, but they don't like to use the telephone. Don't ask me why. But anyway, I called up the Beatle. 
And I said, I want, I'd like to give my lecture on January 26th at 5 p.m. Is the calendar open? And he checked and he said, it is. But he said, you know, you've got to get the room yourself. You see? I said, I know. So I went over to the school's building where the lectures are held, and I said to the steward over there, I'd like to give my inaugural lecture on January 26th at 5 p.m. Can I have my lecture room? And he checked his schedule, and he said, yes. And then I had to call the, the Beetle back and say I had the room. And he said, all right, I'll advertise it in the University Gazette. That meant he'd list it. He said, you send me the title. And so it was all uh, set for January the 26th at 5 p.m. Uh, but the vice chancellor is supposed to preside at all Oxford lectures. If he can't come, he sends his assistant. And God, you know, that poor guy has to listen to some awful lectures. Uh, <laughs> but he has to preside at all lectures. And I had to find out if he was going to be able to preside because Mrs. Williams and I had decided we'd give a sherry party at Queens College for people who had been nice to us and uh, also to run up an audience, maybe. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, we wanted to invite the vice chancellor, but if we invited the vice chancellor, now note this, we had to put on the invitations. The vice chancellor will be present. The invitation was everybody else because you have to wear a gown in his presence. Now, they'd wear the gowns to hear me lecture, but if they came to the sherry party, they could take them off, except he, if he was there, they couldn't, do you see? So we had to put on these cards, the vice chancellor will be present. Well, he agreed to be present at the sherry party. Uh, well, finally came the night of the meeting, and I'd met him at a gaudy, but Mrs. Williams hadn't, and uh, I said, I, 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 you know, I want you to meet him. So we ordered the school's belling, and one of the stewards dashed out and said reverently, uh, you are to meet the vice chancellor in the reception room. And, and he pointed to the room, and Mrs. Williams and I went down there. I, walking with some difficulty because of the costume I had to wear for this, dark shoes, black shoes, a dark suit, a white shirt, a white bow tie, the kind you'd wear with tails, my academic gown, and my Oxford hood, they give every arm with an Oxford MA, my Oxford hood, and a mortarboard. That was the costume I had to wear for this thing, do you see? And so we went into the reception room, and very soon, the beetle came in. And he had on one of those crinkly hats like you see in the Beef Eaters gym ads, you know? Uh, and he took off, he looked humpback like a character out of Dickens, and he took off about ten scarves and two overcoats. Uh, and then he very reverently unwrapped something he was carrying, which turned out to be the university mace, the symbol of authority. And he cradled it in his arms, and he said, I will go out and conduct the vice chancellor in. And he must have known what he was going to pull up. And so he went out, and he brought the vice chancellor in, and I introduced him to Mrs. Williams, and, and then she went in to get her seat. And the vice chancellor said to me, have you been, you know, do you know the protocol? And I said, I think so. He said, well, let's go. So I fell in on his left with the beetle walking in front of us holding the mace. Went out of the reception room, down the hall, into this lecture room, which I was glad to see was filled. And as we came in the back door, to me, this was very interesting. I think the people in the back row, out of the corner of their eyes, caught sight of the mace. And maybe you've seen uh, moving pictures or something of the coronations, you know, where the royal mace goes by and everybody stands up. Well, the people in the back row caught sight of the thing and they came up. You see? And as the, as the three of us walked down the aisle, these rows came up one by one. And I said later to the vice chancellor, I remarked on that. He said, gives you a feeling of power, doesn't it?
But we, we walked down to the head of the aisle, and the vice chancellor took a chair that had been assigned to him, and there's no introduction. And I walk up to the podium and look out over the audience, and then I tip my hat to the vice chancellor, and I say, Mr. Vice Chancellor, and he's seated there. He tips his hat back to me, then the audience sits down. See? And I start to read my lecture on Huey Long, and I didn't know how this group was going to react to Huey Long, you know? And I read the first quotation from him. He was talking about Roosevelt. He said, I can take him. I can outpromise him, and he knows it. He's a phony. said, besides, his mother's watching him, and she won't let him go too far. And my mother's dead, and she wouldn't care what I did anyway. Besides, he's living on inherited income. I can take him. And they burst into loud laughter, and I was reassured. Uh, well, I went on about 50 minutes, and I'd said before the lecture, jokingly to the vice chancellor, and this sounds very conceited, but I don't mean it to be. Uh, I said, well, I, I said, you know, if there's tumultuous applause, I guess you'll stop it, won't you? And he said, yeah, uh-uh, you know, uh, because the English generally don't do this. And so I got through, and when I got through, to indicate I was through, I tipped my hat to the vice chancellor. And then the audience began to applaud. <coughs> Uh, and they kept on applauding, and I looked at the vice chancellor, and he just sat there and grinned. And uh, I felt like a fool because I didn't want to stand up there, you know, too long, and I tipped my hat to the audience and caused it to fall over on the side. Uh, and uh, yet I didn't want to seem rude and walk off, and so I just stood there while this applause went on. But the Beatles stopped it. He'd had enough, finally, you see? And he just stood up with that mace. And then the whole audience came up, and we walked over, uh, to the sherry party, and we walked out, the vice chancellor said, it's a relief to hear a lecture I can understand. <laughs> and then we walked over to Queen's College, and he said, uh, did you fall on your invitations I'd be president? And I said, yes, I did. He said, hell, we'll have to keep the gowns son. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a... Uh, it was a wonderful nine months, but it was a long time to be away, and uh, Mrs. Williams and I were both glad when the time drew near for returning. And I think we felt very much like the expatriate, the American expatriate in Stephen Vincent Benet's poem, I Am In Love With American Names. And this is about an American who's been a long time in Europe, and he's saying, I'm in love with American names, the uh, hard names that will never grow old or soft. And the concluding verse runs, I shall not rest quiet in Montparnasse. I shall not lie easy at Winchelsea. You may bury my body in Sussex grass. You may bury my tongue at Chamedy. I shall not be there. I shall rise and pass. Bury my heart at Wounded Knee. <laughs> speech just reading the phone book. <laughs> Pick up your mate. Yes, no, I, I, I intend, some of the, I got some great ideas for uh, cocktail parties and meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want Marshall to look into this. I just wonder, hey, Jerry, if, can I ask a question? Uh, what, 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 I write the funny stuff. It's, you're ruining the timber. There's a certain tempo that goes with all this. I'll be glad to answer the question. Uh, 
No, I just wanted the club to justify the mace and the gowns. So uh, <laughs> but it's a great it's a great way to get us out of here at 5:30. <laughs> uh, I suppose uh, this would be a good time to. Oh, I, one more thing I'd, I'd like to say before I uh, open the question for you. I just want Bill Aldorfer and Don Russell not to throw away those speeches because we're going to use them next year. <laughs> Or as they say on the Johnny Carson show, that uses up two meetings. <laughs> uh, I suppose now I'd like to open up the uh, question period. I suppose there are a lot of people who would like to ask T. Harry why they're not uh, variety on the Oxford campus this year. George? Oh. Well, two things. Why don't we get Harry to tell us about Huey Long someday? <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I don't know whether you know the story. Not a question at all. Laura Johnson tells us sitting next to one of the Oxford Johns, and I think it does the difference, and saying, what do you teach? He said, oh, modern history. What does that mean here in Oxford? Oh, 16th, 17th century. Yeah. And then he said to Walter, what do you teach? And you know, Walter did William Allen White in the 1930s, and why we didn't like that, like Stevenson. And the, the Johns said, that's not history. That's politics. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Oxford. Uh, no. What about the tuition, the difference in tuition uh, there and here? Yeah. Well, the, uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, I don't mean it, but yeah, uh, uh, actually, Oxford, neither Oxford nor Cambridge anymore is a rich man's school uh, because uh, of the lavish government grants that are now available to students in England. Uh, so that if you can get into Oxford or Cambridge, uh, and if you can't finance it, the government will finance it, so that there, it, it's no longer a rich man's university. Uh, the college that is supposed to be, have the wealthiest students, uh, is Christ Church, which is also, interestingly, strongly pro-Confederate in its uh, Civil War sympathies. Uh, but uh, uh, that, I would say, is the only college at Oxford that has a, uh, a rich man's clientele, which is, is Christ Church. But the, I don't know what the tuition is, but a, a, lot, a lot of students get government grants now. Slide. Uh, Harry, would you comment on uh, uh, the libraries in general, and particularly upon the resources for the study of American history on the libraries, Oxford? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, each college has a library. I think Queens College had, uh, oh, maybe 200,000 volumes. And uh, of the college libraries, it has more on American history than any other college because uh, uh, some of the Harmsworth professors have given it books. Alan Nevins gave a tremendous number of books, so many of which were put in my room or office. And Bell Wiley gave it a number, and I gave it a smaller number, neither one of them. But the biggest uh, collection is at Rhodes House, which is a center, you know, for Empire, Anglo-American studies. It really has, a, uh, uh, I think, a pretty good basic collection, plus uh, uh, a number of manuscripts dealing with the slave trade, uh, uh, anti-slavery movement, and so forth. Uh, I never used the Bodleian Library. I had no occasion to, but my wife did. Uh, she has a sister who's a genealogy <coughs> nut and who wanted to try and track down the family. So she had to become a reader at the Bodleian. And in order to get in and be a reader at the Bodleian, you have to go up and swear an oath you won't steal books and all that. 
and she had to be vouched for by a fellow, so I vouched for her. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I signed the statement, and she went up and was sworn in. Uh, but what intrigued her, Clyde, was they have no card catalog. And you turn, it's like a notebook, you see. Uh, hard to find books, really, I think. But the, uh, that's another example of the English. They, uh, they're, 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 not a, they're not good with technology or machines. They're really an inefficient people. I don't know whether you read last year, and this comes into the librarian business, Clyde, <coughs> the other half of the Caxton manuscript was discovered, yeah. and half of it was at Cambridge. And this other half was bought by an American dealer, but English law states that uh, he can't take out the country for so many months if, if they can raise the money there. Well, Cambridge started a drive. I tell you, it just got nowhere. And then finally, this American, I think he's from Michigan, who had done some copying work in the English archives during the war, he went to George Brazilier, the publisher, and said, look, I'll put up the money to buy it for Cambridge if they'll let you publish a facsimile edition. And American ingenuity, in a short time, saved the Caxton manuscript for Cambridge. But they had the slightest idea how to do it. And I was talking to one woman at a party. And I think in many ways they're, they're uh, oh, I don't like to say a beaten people, but a people who have lost a lot of their fights, you know, their optimism. And she said, I think the Caxton manuscript ought to go to America. And I was horrified. I said, why? I think it ought to stay here. She said, no. Uh, you Americans take better care of things. You air condition your libraries. <laughs> and I said, well, why can't you air condition your library? She was astounded, you know. My God, air condition a library. <laughs> yes, sir. We now have quite a a uh, backlog of Rhodes Scholars who have been in that Oxford. Yeah. What is their record at, at the Oxford? Now, how have they well, as far as I know, very good. Uh, I got to know some of them. I think there are more American Rhodes Scholars than from any country. I believe this is correct, isn't it? I think so. And uh, uh, they're, they're, the, the ones I met were very, very superior people, very good students, I thought. Of course, a lot of them are homesick, but they're, they're, I, as far as I know, they do very well. How do they recognize the English? Are they recognized as well, I no, I don't think I don't think they're recognized, you know, as being superior. Any not not unless they can prove they're better. No. Uh, I, I may say on this, although it's not related, that uh, I have paid certain tributes to the English educational system and said they can do it this way because of the lack of numbers. But their graduate schools are comparatively undeveloped as compared to ours. They're very small and un undeveloped as compared to the American graduate schools. Dan? What well, I was interested in was the uh, system of grading and the system of sending uh, out your students there in school. Yeah. Well, they, uh, they don't admit it, but they do have some what we'd call dropouts or people who ought to be dropped out, you see. But they're given this examination at the end of the three years, and then they get a first, a second, or a third. And if you get a third, as I understand it, that's pretty bad, you see. And uh, these grades will determine to a considerable degree what kind of jobs they'll get with the government or with business. And so they're very important to them. But uh, I, I know one student who said, I'd rather get a third at Oxford than a first at uh, Exeter or someplace, you see. I don't think this would necessarily, you know, be true in the ratings, but 
uh, this reflects the prestige of the two schools, uh, but uh, uh, they get students who come up to the very end who should have been dropped out before you know, because of their, they just don't have it, you see. But they claim that, you know, they're all, they all have a high capability. This simply isn't true. Were these examinations? Oh, these are written examinations, and I saw some. They write for hours, and uh, the, the, the questions are often what we'd ask Tom in a graduate exam, I think. No multiple choice. Huh? No multiple choice, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Don? Dr. Williams, uh, during the course of your lectures, did you uh, touch on the Trent Affair? If so, uh, what were the English students? No, no I, I, I didn't. I got up through slavery and through secession, and then I gave these two lectures in which I talked about strategy and, uh, you know, some of the turning points in the war, very briefly on the big battles. But I, no, I didn't get into the uh, uh, diplomacy of the war. I wasn't supposed to, really, you see. Yep. Did the English understand your joke? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, well, now they they don't tell uh, uh, anecdotes or stories in the way we do. And I never heard anybody tell a dirty story over there. You know, we'd say uh, I, I don't know whether they don't go in for this or whether these people just didn't know any. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, but no. Uh, uh, in their humor, I say they're likely to go in for this sly, low-key remark. You see, <coughs> for example, uh, in December, my wife and I went to Gibraltar for two weeks and uh, stayed at a hotel there, and we got well acquainted with an English couple. He was a businessman, and uh, and one day, about one of these cruises came in. I don't know, about a hundred or so Americans. Most of them were women, and most of them were elderly. And it turned out they were members of a retired employees association on a cruise, you see, and they put in Gibraltar, and they took over the hotel. And uh, very noisy, uh, particularly the women. Uh, and I was having breakfast with this Englishman one morning, and uh, uh, the, the, all these women, the tables all around, just gab, 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 you know. And I said to this Englishman, I said, Frank, I, I understand uh, these people are members of uh, some kind of an association in America, but I haven't found out what it is yet. And he put his coffee cup down and he said, obviously not a secret association. <laughs> uh, but but, but, but they, they, they also go in for uh, uh, the, the malicious uh, anecdote or, or story, you say, or wisecrack. For example, there was a famous English scientist at Oxford called uh, uh, Lindemann. And he had an enemy on faculty of his college. And, oh, the two men were just a swords point all the time, but one, one spring, the, the enemy invited Lindemann to tea in the garden of his home. Garden, we'd say yard. And he said to Lindemann, I, I, you, you must come. Uh, the Judas tree is in full bloom. <laughs> and, and Lindemann said, I should think so. <laughs> I understand that there is, a, uh, there is a British Civil War round table, I believe, they meet in London. Do you have occasion to address that? No, I tell you, it's called the Confederate Historical Association. And I was asked to invite, uh, speak to them like I, I couldn't come when they wanted me to. But they have 250 members. And uh, they put out a mimeograph quarterly, I think it is, which is strongly Confederate in sympathy. And uh, I think Mr. Wiley addressed them one time, but I, I wasn't able to do it. 
But that's the only group I know that is organized in England to study the Civil War. Dr. Wade, yeah. Um, if I understand you right, Oxford is made up of small schools, not where our university. In other words, it's not a school of agriculture, school of medicine. It's, it seems that before, as time progressed, a man started a school, then this this became part of the university. I mean, it, no matter what it was. Well, as I say, it, it's hard to describe. Now, students are in certain colleges, and they take they have tutors in this college, but they may have a class with a man who's a tutor in another college, you see. And uh, in my classes, I have students from all seven or eight different colleges. Well, then there'll be uh, three or four colleges of history, all within this university? No, uh-uh, no. No, uh, there are... I mean, you, 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 you read in history, you take tutorials in history, you take classes in history, you take lectures in history, and that's it. And there's a curriculum in modern history, you see, and, I, and as I say, they have a man who kind of coordinates the thing. But, but that's it. Yeah? Uh, I've heard several times over the years that at Oxford, a student earning a degree can merely uh, stay on the books in some manner and be given a master's degree without any further work. Is that true? Uh, I don't know whether this is true or not. Uh, they, they, they do give a PhD, and I think, you know, they stand an oral exam like our people do here. But uh, I don't know that this is true, that you may be given an MA. It may be. I don't know. I, I think uh, Mr. Smith had a question. I think it used to be. Uh-huh. And I had a friend who said the PhDs were just for the North America. Yeah. They have a lunatic fringe over there like we have in Columbia and UCLA. They want to take over and dictate the whole goddamn thing. Uh, 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 I was getting No, the, uh, uh, the, the students are uh, uh, very much interested in political issues and uh, uh, of course, many of them belong to the Labor Party. Uh, the, the, they, they, are, they are not, however, the English students have not been until this year uh, uh, what you call a, a, a violent uh, a demonstrating group, but there's been a great deal of it this year. Uh, uh, but, uh, while at uh, Sussex College, I think somebody poured paint on the head of an American visitor there lecture. And at another college, the, the, uh, a labor MP and his wife were beaten up. And uh, this is the first time, though, I think, relatively, or almost the first time, that they've had this violence in English universities. And uh, I know that when they had the great march on uh, uh, the American embassy, uh, according to the London Telegraph, which I, I subscribe to the Sunday edition, the German students were imported to help lead that thing. You know, they were supposed to be tougher street fighters. Uh, but uh, th there have been a number of violent demonstrations in, the Engli in, in some of the English universities this year, which is a relatively new thing, I think. Them. They're, they're usually pretty, pretty polite and restrained about the thing, you see. I know the, the story of the English MA at Oxford and Cambridge. You can uh, obtain it by 
continuing your your name on the book for one year and paying a fee of about ten pounds. Can you? Uh -huh. And then yeah. you get it and you automatically. Yeah, it, it, I, I would think it's fairly easy to get. I think that is correct. This is yeah. not true at the Red Brick University, but at Oxford. Yeah, Virginia. yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know well, who's Stan. last first. This one more curious question, and uh, that's uh, the students of, of, of the English looking down their noses at our race relations in the United States. How do they reconcile their attitude uh, toward the Jamaican and West Indian uh, influx uh, here in the last few years? In yeah. Country? Well, uh, uh, actually, uh, again, I say you, and, and this would be, I think, partly true in America, too, you get outside of the universities and... Uh, uh, I think you would find that most white people in England have some kind of a prejudice against colored peoples. Now, often it may be fairly mild, but I think it's there. Last year at Oxford, or the year I was at Oxford, uh, an Oxford beauty shop refused to do the hair of a Negro woman, claiming they didn't know how to do it. You know, which is like saying in America, we don't know how to cut Negroes' hair. And uh, uh, this recent speech by Enoch Powell, the Tory leader, which aroused such a tremendous support from the laboring classes, a good deal of the prejudice, racial prejudice there, is, developed, is directed against Indians, of course. But I would say, basically, they have as much as we have. They just heretofore haven't had occasion to show it, because I think the non-white population of England is only about 3 or 5% or something like that. But when it gets concentrated in certain cities, it it shows up just about the way it does here, I think. How do they reconcile the fact that they brought them over here to They don't. Well, I, I don't think they consider that. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, they take the test from the children about 11 years of age. That's what I understand, yeah. And then if they're not, uh, their aptitude is not uh, up to their standards, they go to trade school. Yeah. Now, must they take tests again before they are admitted, or is that accepted then? No, th this indicates that they are qualified to go to a university, and then uh, what, uh, uh, whether they enter a particular university depends on whether they can pass the requirements at that university. Now, for example, at Oxford, demands two foreign languages, so they would have to demonstrate some kind of a proficiency in these foreign languages, you see, before they could get into Oxford. But once having made that, passed that test at the 11th grade, they're eligible then to go into a university that they can enter. But if they don't... Uh, then they are doomed to a vocational school. That'd be a raw IQ test that early, mm -hmm. would it? Well, I don't know what kind of a test it is, and I don't know whether it's a ballot test, but they they say it is. The other question is, you said, did I understand it correctly, that they, there are no tests in the, at Oxford until in their third year? Yeah, the end of their, that's right, yeah. End of their school, uh, schooling. Yeah. That, that, that's what... Like here, I mean, you'd be able to be carried in all the way. If yeah. You, uh, that's right, isn't it, Tom? As I, as I understand it, they're given, well, they might be given one of these preliminary tests, mm -hmm. but, but otherwise, nothing until the end of the third year. That's it, yeah. They have to make it on that. I think this is pretty true of all the European systems. Uh -huh. Baccalaureate is one exam yeah. that skills you are making. Yeah. I think it's true of most of them. Yeah. It always seems to me that perhaps because of the uh, tradition of training and formal debate, yeah, and I, I think that often they, uh, oh, in these written papers they present, they, they sound better than they really are. They, they put their best foot forward. 
and, and, and they're very good at expressing themselves, either in conversation or in writing. But I remember one boy in one of these classes reading a paper, and, and you know, it sounded awfully good. And he said something about Butler of South Carolina. And I interrupted him. I said, is this Andrew Butler? And he said, I don't know. Uh, so he, he was making it sound, he's making his knuckling sound more than it really was, you see. Uh, I, I, as I said, I think they could do more with the lecture system than they do. Because I believe in the lecture system up to a point. I think there are many advantages in it. And I think they could use it and, and achieve good results to a greater degree than they do. You mentioned uh, several of our friends have been there as your predecessors. What about the, uh, pre the, the last year and the forthcoming years? Do you know anything? Well, the present uh, Armstrong professor is Don Fahrenbacher of, Har of Stanford, and next year it's going to be Mr. Fletcher Green. Uh, so we're moving away from the Civil War. Uh, yeah, they, they, have these, they have these two new courses now, and then after that it's Professor David Davis of Cornell, uh, whose subject is slavery, uh, but uh, they, they are moving away from that, yeah. I mean, as soon as I can count on this would be 74. I've already put your name in, yeah. <laughs> Again, I'd like to thank uh, T. Harry, and I think uh, I don't know anyone who's more enjoyed by the roundtable, who's more beloved by the roundtable.